Well, hello, everybody. Good morning. It is very different to be on this side of the podium this morning, but I really appreciate uh, the invitation to come uh, share some thoughts with you. Um, and thank you, Karen, for the lovely introduction. Um, but yes, my name is Chris Taylor. Some of you have seen me here lurking around. I usually come in late, dragging my two children with me. And if you don't know my kids, you have heard my children. I'm sure of that. Um, so I, you know, I went through several um, versions of my remarks today. I kept giving them to my husband, who kept giving them back, saying, "These are too political. You sound like you're making a political speech." So you know, I've tried to maybe approach today's topic in a little more personal way. Um, and I'm also used to having more of a dialogue when I speak. So I usually say to the audience, well, just, you know, call out a question or two. So this is a bit of a different format for me. Uh, but several months ago, my husband came home and said, I want to go see Mark Marin, who is a political comedian. He's coming to the Orpheum. I don't know, how many of you, did anyone go to that show? Anybody know Mark Maron? He's a, okay, some of you know who he is. He's a political comedian. And I have to say, when my husband came home in February, I was not that excited to go see a political comedian because that seemed a bit like an oxymoron to me. I wasn't um, <laughs> laughing a whole lot uh, during those days in February, I have to say. But I went and, you know, it was just what I needed. He was very, very funny. But he started with this question that everybody in the audience could totally relate to when he started with this question. So what do you think he's gonna do next? <laughs> and we all knew who the he was. Um, and you know, I think this question is as relevant today as it was back in April. Um, I have long turned off the ping on my cell phone when I get you know, those emails, the ping, 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 ping. So I turned that off a long time ago, but you know, now I'm getting these New York Times breaking news constantly. So every time I open my phone, I'm bracing myself for that red New York Times breaking news. So I have to kind of work up to it. Um, but you know, right here, here in Wisconsin, we know so well the devastating consequences of this national agenda we're seeing because we've seen it here in our state. You know, many, many of the policies that we're seeing from deregulation, privatization, um, tax breaks for super rich people that are becoming the hallmark at the federal level have been the hallmark at the state level. And so I think we know all too well how devastating these policies are, you know, on top of kind of the systemic breakdown of our government through voter ID laws and gerrymandering and all this campaign money coming in because our campaign laws have been gutted. So I don't, I'm not gonna go into detail about those things because you all read about those and you know, you're very well informed, you know what's happening. Um, so, you know, the question that I've been asked recently and I was asked by the Prairie uh, you, you, you used to come a couple Sundays ago and address the issue of, well, is democracy dead? You know, kind of an ominous uh, topic to address. I, it's not one necessarily that I would choose, but it got me very much thinking. And I, you know, I do think that democracy is a bit twisting and turning in the wind right now. But is it dead? And I have to say, definitively, I, I respond no. I do not believe that democracy is dead. I believe it's alive, I believe it's within us. 
Um, and in the words, I love the words of Terry Tempest Williams from the readings today. I really appreciate those lovely readings. And, you know, just to quote again, because I think it's so important, she says, the human heart is a first home of democracy. And I really do believe that human beings have an indelible thirst for freedom and for justice and fairness for a government that is truly representative um, and truly represents the people. And I really believe this is part of our human spirit. It's part of who we are. And it causes us to rise up. It causes us to speak out. It causes us to act. Um, and I do, you know, I really do see this living democracy every single day, every day that I walk out of my home. I see it. I see it in my neighborhood. I see it in my community from individuals who are working every single day to create opportunities for people to address systemic inequities. I see it right here in this congregation. Um, you know, you all, we have a social justice coordinator here, and I see that person up at the Capitol. I th see that person engaging, um, actively engaging in policy, and I see the activism and commitment from this congregation to ensure a more just society. I see it on the faces of all the new activists that have called me, have come to meet with me since last November. I can't tell you how many new people, people I've never seen before, I did not know them, constituents of mine, but also people who aren't constituents, who have called and who I've met with, who just want to know how do they get engaged, what, they, what can they do to be involved, how do they make a difference. And I even see democracy in the capital, of all places, right, where we should see it probably the most. And I see citizens come every single week to come and testify at hearings who wait, sometimes hours and hours, to testify on, a, on an issue, to testify sometimes just for a few minutes on an issue, and to speak out for good policies, um, for fairness, and for justice. So those are things I see every single day right here in our community that do really inspire me, and I think we all should be inspired by it. I think our challenge really is, and this is a challenge that I have, um, is to keep acting and keep speaking out even when you are weary, right? And some of us are weary. I mean, sometimes it's very hard, you know, when you feel very tired and you feel defeated to keep going. So how do we embrace the concept of this living democracy that begins with us? Um, and how do we strengthen it? How do we strengthen it when we can't bear to turn on the news? You know, how do we do these things? So I wanted to share with you all this morning some lessons that I've learned in my fairly short tenure um, as a state representative. I've been there, as Karen, as Karen said, for six years. Um, and, you know, throughout that six years, I feel like we've mostly uh, been fighting a lot of battles. But there's lots of opportunities, too. So the first lesson that I wanted to share with you that I've learned is how important it is to listen to our children and to listen to our young people. I heard it once said, and I don't know by who, if any, if any of you know, please come tell me. I Googled, I tried to you know, figure out where did I hear this, but it struck me so profoundly. I heard it said that children were sent to us by God to teach us something that we needed to learn. And I believe that that is true. In movements throughout our history, we really have always looked to young people to show us the way forward. Um, when I get 
when I feel like I need some inspiration, there's a couple things that I look at again. I go back to 1957 in Little Rock, Arkansas, when you had nine school kids, literally children, who were the first group of African-American children to attend Little Rock High School. And you can see the tapes, you can see the videos of them walking through this hateful crowd, being blocked by the National Guard. The National Guard blocked them, would not let them into the school. And these kids kept at it. I mean, these were 14-year-old children. They kept at it, and they walked through this crowd. And anytime I'm feeling like, oh, I can't do it, it's too hard, you know, I go back and look at what these children did. And that kind of courage is something I think we all should aspire to. Congressman John Lewis, 1965. How many of you saw the movie Selma? Some of you see that? Well, John Lewis, who's now, you know, is now a current congressman, he was a young man then, and he had a really important role in leading that march. And when the marchers were first going over that bridge in Selma, on the, as we saw in the movie, and if you read about this um, incident and look at photos of what occurred here, on the other side of that bridge were dozens and dozens of law enforcement with clubs and pistols who were ready to take these marchers down. And still, these marchers went over the bridge. How many of us can put ourselves in that situation and, and can say we would have done the same thing? I don't know. I hope that I would have, but I'm not so sure if I knew that I was going to get my skull uh, cracked, which is what happened to John Lewis. The Black Lives Matter movement was started by three young African-American women, and they really have fundamentally, I think, altered the discussion around criminal justice reform. Um, right here at home, I had three, recently at three elementary school children, girls, come to see me. They wanted to help pass a law for equal pay for equal work for women. And these were three little girls who had been taking on this cause, and they actually came to a press conference that we did on equal pay for equal work for women. And here were these three children who had become these incredible advocates. And then, of course, the other, the other example that I have is with my own children. I am the proud mom of two boys, six, six and 11 years old, and my older son, Sam, came to me shortly after the November election. I think he knew that, you know, his mother was a little bit upset. And he was a little bit upset. Our whole family was kind of uh, in, in a, a bit of uh, despair. Um, well, he gave me a book called Wonder. Any of you read this book, Wonder? Okay, it's, it's actually coming out as a movie. I just realized this. And this is a book by R.J. Policio. And, and my son said, I want you to read this book. It's about a boy who has severe facial deformities. And his mother has homeschooled him and kept him home from school. And it, it turns out when he gets to be about 10, mom really realizes, I, I have reached the end of my knowledge. You know, if, if anyone's done fifth grade math recently, you will see why she reached the end of her knowledge. And she realizes in the book, I have to send my son to school. And she also realizes that there's going to be heartbreaking cruelty in that process, but also knows there's going to be overwhelming love and compassion and empathy that her son is going to experience. And in fact, though there is cruelty in that her son experiences some cruelty from the children at his school, it is this overwhelming uh, sense of compassion and love and friendship 
that is developed. Um, and I really, this book really kind of reconnected me after the election to our basic humanity. It really reconnected me to empathy and to love. So it was my son, really, who brought me back when I needed, uh, when I needed it the most. We need not just listen to our children and our young people, but we need to engage them. And we need to learn from them. And we need to include them in this march that many of us are on for justice and equality. Um, we need to empower them to lead. And we need to know when to follow them. This is something I will tell you. My party has not done well. We have not done this well in encouraging our youth and in giving them leadership roles. Um, but our future really does depend on it. Lesson number two that I've learned is find support and strength and empowerment in your spiritual community. Um, and many of us are here because of this. You know, I grew up a Methodist. My husband is Jewish. And now I'm a UU. So it sounds like a song I could write about, you know, these various things. But I really do try to incorporate these different aspects of my spiritual traditions into my life. And it really does help me navigate some of these very difficult situations, political situations um, in my life. So from my Methodist upbringing, I really do return to the story of Christ. Um, was he a savior? Possibly. A revolutionary? Absolutely, is what I was taught growing up. The story of Christ, regardless of your beliefs of whether he exists or who he was, is the story of an, of an individual who took on the status quo. A person who did not sit it out, but challenged every authority um, to accomplish and address some of the inequities of his day. And that story does provide us, I think, with a very clear example of what moral courage looks like. And I believe this moral courage is a core tenet of democracy. We all have it in us, but sometimes we need help summoning it up. There are so many occasions on my very short commute to the Capitol. I live about two and a half, three miles east of the Capitol, where I have found myself praying for that moral courage, praying that I will have the strength to say what needs to be said and to do what needs to be, do, what needs to be done. As an adult, FUS has really, is really my spiritual home. I really consider it. I started regularly coming here after my older son was born because I wanted him to be exposed to the ethics and the principles of uh, Unitarian Universal, Universalism. And I also wanted him to be um, literate, religiously literate, to have an understanding. But what I quickly realized was I needed to come here as much as my children, if not more, frankly. Um, and for me, FUS really has been a sanctuary for me. It's really a safe spot for me um, to come with all my imperfections, with my kids whose hair is not brushed, their shoes are untied, and as I said, they're noisy. Uh, but after I dropped my kids off at religious education, and I shouldn't say this, I'm sorry, Michael, I'm gonna probably, I don't wanna inspire bad habits of anybody, but I do sneak into the back and get a cup of coffee, and, and then I sit in the back, and I have to say, mostly, oh yeah, I see somebody does that too out there, mostly, um, you know, 
I absorb a message that I almost always really needed to hear. You know, I almost always feel like, wow, that was directed right at me. So I feel rejuvenated. I'm moved. I'm inspired to act. And I think that's what we get. But as important is that the, the core lesson that I have to keep learning again and again. I wish I would just learn it and be done with it. But it doesn't seem like I can do that. And it is that, you know, the activism and our advocacy, it has to come from love. It cannot come from anger. It cannot come from hatred. Um, hate burns us up. It burns us out. It's not sustainable, but we know love is, that love does sustain us. It's hard. I can't say that every time I stand up to speak on the assembly floor, I'm feeling a lot of love for some of my colleagues, both Democrat and Republican, I should say. Um, but I'm always reminded in this place to stand on the side of love. And as long as we do that, we really cannot go wrong. We really cannot. My last lesson is to act, but actively listen as well. In my opinion, our democracy depends on citizens being comfortable as political actors. Sometimes it's not comfortable to speak out or write the letter or go visit your legislature. But I do think it's super, super important. There's not one savior that's going to cure the ills of our government. There is not a magic bullet here. But it is going to be and rest on our collective effort. We don't have to do everything to keep fighting for a government that truly represents people, to keep fighting for fairness, to keep fighting for justice. But we have to do something. We have to do something. As Martin Luther King Jr. said long ago, and this is one of my favorite quotes, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you must keep moving forward. So that activism and that movement we have to embrace, I believe, it's very, very critical. Even if it's one action a day, people say to me sometimes, I'm so overwhelmed, I don't know what to do first. And I say, just do one thing a day, or one thing a week, but do something. But we also must listen to those who might have a very different uh, religious, cultural, ethnic tradition and different beliefs than what we do. And this in no way involves accepting racism or homophobia or sexism. We must always, in my opinion, stand very, very strongly against those beliefs. But we must look for things that unite us, not divide us. Um, I have knocked on, I don't know how many doors, I've probably knocked on thousands of doors for candidates all around the state. So I've been everywhere. I've been north, south, I've been all parts, you know, suburban, urban, rural. And despite all this talk of the urban-rural divide, and it is real, and Kathy, some of you know Kathy Kramer, who is a professor right here who's written about this urban-rural divide. I'm not saying it's not real. But in my experience in talking to people, people are really similar in a lot of ways. They really want the same things. They want a chance. They want an opportunity to have a decent job. They want to be able to provide for their families. They want to be able to pay their mortgage, and they want opportunities for their children. So they're, I, in my experience, oh, and they want a government who truly has their back. They re there really is this feeling out there that government just is not working for average people, for most people. So they want to know that uh, their government is one that, that is watching out for them. 
So um, what I've learned really is that when we do listen, and I mean actively listen, so often, how many of you when you're engaged in maybe a little argument with your significant other, you stop listening because you're trying to figure out how you're gonna respond. This is something I really am working on. I wish my husband were here to hear this. Maybe he'll, hear, he'll be here at the 11 o'clock. I'm really working on this. To actively listen and not be anticipating what your response is going to be. When I was first elected, I said to myself, you know, and honestly, when I first ran for office, this is six years ago, I had a baby. So my son was a baby. I'd never run for anything. You know, I had been elected uh, student body vice president when I was a senior in high school. So that was my experience in running for office. And I remember the night before the election, I turned to my husband and I said, you know, do you think I could win? And he said, yeah, I think you might be able to win. So this was the night before my election. Anyway, I have um, really learned that I was misguided in thinking that I wasn't going to be changed. You cannot sit next to a parent. Uh, one, one specific incident, I'm thinking of a mother whose daughter was murdered and not fundamentally change um, by hearing that experience. It, you know, and I have been fundamentally changed because people, and this is probably one of the biggest honors of my job, people are so willing to share their personal experiences with you because they want good policy. They want to change things when something really traumatic happens to them. And so I'm very honored by that, um, but it has changed me. And you know, it should change us when we share stories. It should change us. It should open our hearts. It shouldn't close them. And these experiences of listening to each other, even when you don't agree, connects us in ways um, that we didn't have before when we do listening. The story of democracy, in my opinion, really is the story of people uniting together around common goals and mobilizing to actualize these goals through their collective power, not separately. It is not an individual sport democracy. It is a collective job that we have here. I still believe in the collective power of people to make their government, to control their government in their own image and to change their communities for the better. I very much believe that that power is within all of us. I just actually yesterday was at a run um, that was organized by this couple for Planned Parenthood. And they decided they were just gonna, you know, ha have a run. They were sponsored a run to raise money. 500 people came to run. Two people did this. So we have a lot of power. Perhaps what we're really in is a rebirth of democracy. Perhaps our current leaders at the state and federal level have awakened us. And now it's time for us to stay awake. I want to close with a quote from one of my favorite political activists who happens to be a reverend, and some of you might know him, William J. Barber II. He's a pastor out in North Carolina, and he started the Forward Together Moral Monday movement in North Carolina. And this is what he says. We must shock this nation with the power of love. We must shock this nation with the power of mercy. We can't give up on the heart of our democracy. We must shock this nation and fight for justice for all. And then he says, that his last line is, this is truly what the heart of democracy is about. So let's never give up, but keep empowering each other and strengthening each other and keep on our 
road that so many of us are, so many of us are on to create a more just and equitable world. Thank you so much.